Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. We have a very special guest today, an amazing guest. Gary Josephson is here, and his story, his life story will blow your mind. We're going to talk to him. It's going to be an incredible episode. We're going to talk to him in just a second. But first, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And there you will find Blue Cobra CBD oil, the highest quality CBD oil on the planet, period. Exclamation point. Why is that? It is because the extraction process, how... The CBD is extracted from the hemp flower is a proprietary process. It was developed by a man named Howard Hitt, a.k.a. Big H, and it contains no chemicals, no solvents, no gases, nothing unnatural was used in the production of this incredible product. In fact, the hemp Flour that was used is 100% organic, organ-grown hemp. The product is 100% organic. Everything about this is amazing. There's truly nothing else like it. There's three styles, maximum strength, king cobra, regular strength, little king cobra, and wild thing CBD for pets because we want our pets to have that high-quality medicine that we would expect for ourselves. We have a discount code that gets you free shipping on any order in the continental 48 United States. That code is big H B I G and the letter H gets you free shipping and there's a money back guarantee. If you don't like the product for some reason, you get to keep the product You get your money back. If you had to pay shipping for some reason, you get that back as well. It's a win-win situation, people. Try this product. It's going to absolutely astound you. I love it. I take it very regularly, and it helps me be my best self. So go check this out, people. Get a bottle. Experience it for yourself. Blue Cobra cbd.com that is blue cobra cbd.com and when you're done with that follow me on instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth that is the address you can follow me there spotify apple podcasts google podcasts wherever you go to get your podcast click that button that connects us So you know exactly what's going on when we have these guests, these powerful guests. You get that notification. You know instantly what's happening. That's the purpose of this technology that we currently have that's spiraling out into God knows what. And of course, 
Tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. Bring them here. Midnightsonearth.com. Okay, so we're going to talk to Gary in just a second, but I have to read his bio. We always read the bio, so here we go. Gary Josephson was born in 1970 in San Fernando Valley, California, to a conservative working class family. Born terminally ill, deaf, and two months premature, his doctor said he would not survive and informed his parents various times to prepare for his death. Having beaten the odds and grown into early childhood, Gary did not fit in with the world he was born into. At the age of three, Gary's abilities turned on and he would have out-of-body experiences, would go to realms of ghosts and disembodied souls, and was overwhelmed with his ability to feel others' energy around him. At the age of eight, Gary started to telepathically connect to aliens and receive downloads from beings that felt vibrationally low and manipulative, which started to attract negative government attention. His quest then became to raise his vibration and connect to higher vibrational entities. By the age of 15, he was connecting regularly to Archangel Michael, who taught him the nature of physical reality, the ability to control vibration and raise consciousness with intention and purpose. It was this connection that sent Gary on his path of using his abilities to help humanity. This led him to working for over 30 years as a behavioral therapist and spiritual advisor, 11 years as an exorcist, and we're going to talk about all this stuff. Believe me, it's amazing. Traveling the world and meeting with spiritual teachers in India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Africa, Peru, Sri Lanka, and China. Gary's intention in working with clients is to help them increase their awareness of and direct experience with God and overcome the things that hold them back using whatever method or modality that is appropriate for that individual. These modalities include hypnosis, behavioral modification therapy, mediumship, channeling, and energy-clearing techniques. Gary believes that through self-acceptance, clarity of intention, and leaving behind that which no longer serves us, that our vibration will naturally rise, leading to the evolution of the soul. Wow, what a bio. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. It's awesome to be here. <laughs> Lots to unpack there. We're going to talk about a lot <laughs> of things that happened to you. But uh, where are you right now? Let's talk about where you are. Uh, South America. So I'm very close to southern Brazil. 
Okay, wow. I'm in Portland, Oregon. And uh, thanks to Zoom, we're having this incredible real-time conversation. So, Gary, my God, what a life. First question, clearly you're not deaf. No. How did you repair your hearing? So, being born premature, I was born naturally, and my ear canals collapsed while I was, you know, going through the canal and being born. So I was very sick. They told my family that that his his hearing is impaired, but when he gets healthier, we can do a surgery, reconstruct his ear canals, and then he'll be able to hear. So that's why I, the surgery was not to any kind of components of my my ears that allow you to hear. They were to the actual canals, reconstructed the tubes in my ears. Wow. And then when it healed, they pulled them out and I could hear, which wow. opened a complete different mess and of complications, but was also amazing. I, I lived in a very silent world and I was happy in my silent world. And when did that and, happen, that surgery? I think probably about three years old. And then, you know, you, you have developmental things that you go through at different ages hearing sound. But since I hadn't heard it, I was delayed. So I had a lot of speech therapy to, to be able to speak clearly. But do you think that that original situation helped to encourage your psychic growth? Like that allowed you to process information from reality via just your, your mind? I, I really do because uh, when you when you don't hear but you feel you just think everything is that way that that's normal and so you just push to feel more. I, I the first year and a half I was in an incubator in an isolate in the hospital and they weren't allowed to touch me because my immune system was compromised. They call it failure to thrive, and so I I had to be in a, in a contained environment to control. Uh, so I don't get sick. So I don't catch colds or anything that could sure. just take me out at such a young age. So it was a different way of, of me being aware of movement around me, but not actually feeling anything, you know, being able to try to connect in a different way. So I do think that played a big role. Wow. And then at three, it, you're saying your abilities activated, but is that uh, influenced by the new information, the new sensory information you were getting? You were able to then form a complete picture and then started to get contacted. I think that, uh, let's see, how do I word that? <laughs> I think that it was already connecting to me that things larger than myself already had a plan of how they were connecting to me. It was a design. It, I absolutely don't believe I earned it. I just believe that <laughs> something decided that it was going to save that little baby and, and, you know, make it possible. There's a lot of, of complication. There's a lot of layers. So yes, from a medical standpoint, they knew that you know, my body was not developing the way it was supposed to. From an energetic standpoint, I was connecting to things that I don't know if if regular average person connects to. I just know that it was what was helping me keep going and stay alive at the time. And I was aware of it. Wow. That's just so intense. Uh, so you feel like perhaps it was a past life situation that uh, created the life that you're in now where you're you're being interacted with by these beings or is it something else okay that's a giant can of worms so let's do it <laughs> so off and on you know my dad and i had a very different relationship he just did not like me from the beginning 
and uh, he loved my my other siblings, but he was very distant from me. And so he was military and he told everybody he was a cook in the military. And the reality, he was not a cook. I have never seen anybody throw knives, shoot guns, shoot bows and arrows and do survival skills like that man could do. There is no way that he was a cook in the military. So growing up, I always believed he had something to do with whatever was happening to me, you know, in infancy through childhood and that the government had something to do with it. It, it didn't come up until years later, you know, that what was going on and how it was going on. So now I, I have a deeper understanding with absolutely nothing that's provable, <laughs> but but a deeper awareness of what was happening, what the projects were that were happening in the early 70s and and what he was part of, you know, that led to me and, and to what was happening. Really? So you feel like there was a program that your father, so he wasn't a cook, obviously he's, he has these incredible skills. Obviously it's a cover story, you know, to tell his family and he's involved in a program and he feel, you feel like he included you in that program. What, what, what was the purpose of this program from your perspective? So that's, that's the kind of sketchy part through my life. Different military people have approached me. I have no no idea who they were. Sometimes they were younger and they were obviously working for something, doing what they were told. And other times they were quite a bit older. And I I had a man come and uh, he was crying. He was military. He was older. He was obviously, you know, retired. He wasn't military anymore. But he apologized to me and told me, you're the last one of the program and you're the only one to survive. Whoa! That's all he said. And I'm like, (laughs) who are you? Wait, come back. He got into a black car, no plates, tinted windows, and was driven away. Oh, my God. And I, I never heard anything about it again, except I went back to my family. You know, my dad has passed away since, you know, you know, then. But back then... I went to him and and said what happened. And he just told me, you're full of shit. My dad was a New Yorker. He was tough and he was unrefined and just very close to being a mountain man. You know, as he got older, he absolutely was a mountain man. He stopped coming out of the mountain like he he used to come back to the house in the city and he, he was more comfortable in the mountain. And it's like, so I loved both worlds. I loved the mountain man that side of my you know family and i love the educated you know side of my family and that's the differences between california and new york okay so whenever i would travel people would show up places and say obscure things that i i had no idea who they are why they would tell me that but i always felt like no they're part of a plan that they're leading me and i just don't know where i'm being led so that's so strange if you think about that you're just this kid and these people are approaching you saying these things and you're kind of probably stuffing it down a little bit because you can't process that level of information as a kid. You're just like, what is happening? But you know intuitively that there's something going on. So you probably just kind of stuffed that down a bit, but still acknowledged it and kind of. It, when I presented it to my mom <laughs> and dad, they just laughed hysterically. Exactly. Said, you're so gullible and somebody played a prank on you. And now you're like, ooh, this is what's happening. But there's something going like, on. 
Well, because it kept happening. Years would go by and it would happen again. Years would go by and different things would happen. So when I put all the pieces together, I'm like, okay, I I have to believe what I'm being told and what I'm experiencing. Right. And this led into you being eight years old, or maybe we're stepping back to you being eight years old. Right. And you're telepathically connecting with these aliens. And perhaps this ties in with the program because you're saying in your bio that it attracted negative government attention. So who were the aliens that you were communicating with? And then what was the government's reaction? Tell me about that. So my bigger question, and I absolutely will answer what you're asking. Sure, sure. Yes. How did they know? (laughs) So. That was, you know, that's what occurred to me when when things came. So they came to my school and they presented to my parents. And this is the 70s that we're doing tests on psychic ability for twins. I have a twin sister. Oh, wow. Okay. they picked up. They convinced my parents that we need to take your kids and test them. It's being done all across the U.S. It's not going to have any effect on anything. We just want to know. My parents were like, our kids are not psychic. What the hell are you talking about? But they agreed to let it happen. So we were taken, you know, to, to you know, we, my parents dropped us off uh, at a place that was obviously like a, a, an office, obviously a medical office, you know, not, you know, in Los Angeles and not designated for whatever this was, but you no, know, it was closed down on a weekday, which struck me as weird. Like, did they pay what the people would have made if they worked today? How are we using this <laughs> office? And so uh, my sister and I were sitting in the front room, the waiting area, watching cartoons, and a man came out came and got me and said, are you ready for testing? And I said, I am. So we went back and they ran the whole kind of crazy gamut that you see in old school movies. <laughs> the, the, the little the, the cards, patches, the wires, the lines, <laughs> the, you know, the, the circles. Sure. And they, they asked me just questions for like over an hour. And then I went back into the main room and my sister was there and I said, oh, you're back. And she said, what? And I said, what did they ask you? And they said, I never, she said, I never left the room. So they only tested me. It was supposed to be a test with twins. And back then there were tests with twins, but it was telepathy. They wanted to know if twins could feel what each other could feel or could know what each other is feeling. But it, it didn't have to do with testing psychic ability. And I was like, why did they only test me if they didn't test her? Weird. So you knew again, there, there's kind of like a red right. flag, you know, something's so now I'm up. like, okay, so they're obviously watching me and they want to know what kind of ability I had. So then when it happened, when I was older and that man came and, and said that to me, I was like, all right, what kind of program was I in that the military took military personnel to have their children have psychic ability? So I'm like, all right, that makes sense to me that they're trying to to affect genetics. And, you know, well, this is the 70s. It wasn't so good. <laughs> it's, it's come a long way. And it's like, but they were trying. And so and I'm like, somehow I was super sick. I was premature and I wasn't supposed to make it. And this man comes and says there were five people as part of this program and they're all gone. You're the only one to survive. And then suddenly the government is coming and saying, you should do this test. And, and talking to my parents, well, in the seventies, you thought the government was out, had your best interest at heart <laughs> and you did what you were told. Right. So if they said, Oh, we're doing this, you said, okay. So. Wow. And then, so you feel like 
the government in, did something to your genetics. Was it extraterrestrial? Do you feel like somehow it, it, it was Later something? on, I questioned that, and I just don't believe they had the technology in place back then to be able to do that. But it doesn't it doesn't escape my realm of possibility that maybe things beyond Earth were helping them to develop things for whatever their goals were in the future. And, and you know, governments were playing along. So that absolutely is true in some ways. And then I don't know if it was true back then. I have no idea. Well, it could have been advanced genetic manipulation, just, you know, it, yes. peak cutting edge science. Like it could have been. That, that was my thought. And, you know. You know, Japan's technology is a good 10 years beyond what they release to other countries. Right. And it, so so it makes sense to me that, yeah, that makes sense that we're going to do that. I mean, I, I later became part of projects that I was aware of were happening and played these small roles in things that showed me that the government does do things and make deals. And oh, definitely. They are trying, you know, to, to push things in that direction. There's evidence so I was everywhere. Like, was I part of that agenda? I don't know. Wow. Well, there sure seems to be some pretty solid evidence. I yeah. mean, it, it was evidence to me. And from your perspective, from your life, it's that's what's happening because you've you had those yeah. experiences directly. You know, we'll talk about the yeah. importance of direct experience. But when these people are saying that, that's real. So it did work. Whatever they did, you survived, and you are yeah. more psychically aware. You're more energetically in tuned and it showed up early in your life and then these beings that you were interacting with as a child you felt like they were lower vibrational like what made you feel that way were they being negative were they were because they... i didn't know it at that time at that age but higher yeah, level sure. beings don't make deals they don't promise you if you do this we'll do this and if you give us this we'll do you know give you this they don't do that right it's like and these things were all about, they were talking about things I didn't understand at that age. I can understand now, but they wanted to be able to splice their DNA from their species to babies in their third trimester of humans. And it's like, and they were trying to figure out how to keep it, the cohesion together, and they couldn't do it. And so they were asking me for my acceptance of this path and my help to be able to figure out how to make that happen. Weird. So they were trying to make a deal, you're saying. You're right. And, and a deal that, what am I agreeing with? I'm agreeing to say, okay, it's okay to affect other people's bodies. And somehow I have the right to decide that for people. I'm like, no, whatever you're selling, the answer is definitely no. <laughs> well, was it also just kind of like an integrity test, whether or not you actually were a conduit for that? It was morally just about, would you say yes and have it affect other people blindly? That, that does enter my mind. And it did enter my mind at that age. And I was like, I was, you know, there was, <laughs> it's going to you know date me by my age, right? But there was uh, two main shows, Cross Superstars, amazing and the super friends league yes also amazing and they were cartoons that only played on the weekend and they played early so i had to wake up and turn on our black and white tv and watch you know these shows but i was absolutely enamored by superheroes 
because as I got older, I learned to shut up. I learned my parents are, are freaking out and thinking I'm crazy. I need to hide it. And they were very clear you need to hide it. And the government was very clear you need to hide it. And so I did. I fell in line and I hid it. But things would just happen around me at the most inopportune times where I couldn't hide it. But then you 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 wanted to change it though, like you wanted to not deal with these deal making beings, yeah, these lower I, I, frequency I beings. I decided if it was possible to feel lower things, then why wouldn't it be possible to feel higher things? And I was determined. I called it darkness. It wasn't literally black, but it was in lower vibration. And I was born into it. I stayed into it, and I was there for so long. And it was terrifying as as a tiny kid. I would put my body to sleep and, and be pulled into those planes, into those realms, didn't know what they were. And it would ask adults and they had no clue what I was talking about and just thought I was crazy and just called it nightmares. And I'm all, they called it night terrors and, and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, OK. As I got older, I'm like, it doesn't accompany any of the actual things that happen for to somebody who experiences those things like sleep paralysis. No, never had that. And it's like, I could wake myself up, I could choose to not sleep, but I knew my body was sleeping, was resting and was repairing itself while my mind was just not shutting off. It was going elsewhere. So I was like, all right, I'm going to work my way out of the darkness and try to find the light. And that's when I started to find uh, higher level beings like Archangel Michael. So tell me about that. Back in the darkness. So you tell me, tell me about that. So you raise your vibration, which is one of the key things that you help people understand with your uh, teachings right. and your sessions. You raise your vibration and you connect with Archangel Michael. Tell me about the first time that happened and what was that like? It was just, it was just white light and it was energy just went through me like a wave and expanded around me. And then for the first time, I was sitting in the light looking at the dark all around me, but oh, I could God. feel the strength, the compassion, the love, the acceptance that was nothing like I had felt in a body on earth. And I was like, wow, that is just high. But it gave me such a clear distinction of how low the low was compared to how high that was. Interesting. There was no speech. There was no communication other than that feeling but I learned that when I called for that, it came and it's like, and then my, my, I started to have dreams that were, I wasn't trapped anymore. I was actually dreaming and having just crazy dreams that were amazing and teaching. And, uh, and that was my, my introduction to what I would later find out was a guide, you know, so I had. I had Sam was the name of a pirate and I was a little kid and I would wake, I have a reoccurring dream as the, I forget what you call the, the boy that's on a pirate ship that serves the captain. And it's like, so I was definitely that and everybody was gruff and violent and aggressive. And he taught me to fight with the sword. He taught me to fight and he taught me that no one else touches me. He beat the hell out of me, but nobody else was allowed to. And I learned confidence, I learned courage, I learned strength in these reoccurring dreams training with this pirate, you know, with the pirate <sighs> captain. And you and feel like that was the influence of these beings kind of showing up in that holographic dream dimension. I, I didn't believe it at the time until finally I was 
you know, I was advanced enough to go to the astral plane and I could meet Archangel Michael on the astral plane. And, you know, it's, it's weird when you travel and you shift in different bodies, you look different and you're different things. So the more, the more evolved you are on the astral plane, depending on which body you traveled in to go there, the different you look. So you're taller and you're different colors. So I'm 12 feet tall and purple on the astral plane. I was like, woohoo, look at me. <laughs> it long hair. And then next to Archangel Michael, the top of my head came up to barely the top of his toe. Oh, wow. And so we would sit on the, the big stone steps out in front of the Akashic Records that just looks like a big library. And it's like, and I would lean on his toe on the steps and we would talk. And he would speak just like a person, but you would always feel that love, that acceptance, and that compassion, which I did not have in my family and I did not have in my life. I, I had to hide who I was. And uh, he's the one that that pointed out, you know, you, you speak to your guides, but you do it in your dream. And now it's time to move out of having to have reoccurring dreams to you shifting a higher to be able to speak to your guide directly. Wow. So amazing yes yeah, so is that when you started to learn the things from michael the things about the nature of reality right and and the the truth behind the reality but the fakeness by our experience in it and the proneness <laughs> to delusion and illusion and our ability to buy into you know if something goes bad somebody did it to us but if something goes well then we either did it or god did it for us <laughs> instead of owning no our life is us and we create it Right. All of it. Exactly. And That's true. So, and he was really big on no delusion, no illusion. You just don't have the time for it. And it's like, we have to be very clear that you need to develop clarity and depth and understanding and acceptance because, and this was when things clicked for me, he's like, we put you in the darkness for a very long time. And I told him, but I'm a light bulb in the darkness and everything that's dark can see me. And he's all, yes. And I'm all, well, what do you mean? <laughs> yes, I don't want to do that. And he's like, we make you the light in the darkness because you have to be the light in other people's darkness. And uh, I was, okay, put me back. Yes. So you have a mission. This was, he gave you a mission. And that, that was me, you know, at 15 years old. Wow. And it's like, so then I, I could spit, I could split my time between existing in the dark and trying to hold on to the light in in a practice and having normal dreams being able to to have play a part in what my subconscious is dealing with and processing in a way that I could do it everything had ulterior motives which came to to upset me as I got considerably older and it's like, you know, 20s, I was like, all right, I can dream, but I can take control of my dreams. And so I was lucid dreaming, in which case, there's a really cool rule, look at your hands. And it's like, if you're dreaming, look at your hands, and it shifts you out of that dream subplane into where you can consciously take control of the dream. So I learned that early on that if I looked at my hands, I, it shifted what the dream was, but now I had my conscious ability to think. If you travel in your astral body, you're pretty wonky, pretty emotional and super kind of happy. But you'll look at a flower. Colors exist in the astral plane that don't exist on Earth. So you're like, that's amazing. And you'll bliss out on how beautiful the flower is. 
until you run out of the ability to run energy there and you come back to your body and you're like, oh, I spent the whole time looking at a flower. But <laughs> if you look at your hands, it, it gives you the ability and nobody knows why, but everybody agrees of all the people I've questioned of that across the planet, they all agree when you look at your hands, that's what happens. It shifts, but it gives you your presence of mind that you don't normally have in your astral body. Interesting. So, so uh, I would look at my hands and then uh, I would be pulled into dreams, other people's dreams. And so I was like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And they said, well, we gave you dreams so that you could learn to control yourself in dreams. And then you're going to go to the astral plane to train on how to be able to control yourself because it's not muscle flexion, it's force of will. And so you have to have just insane force of will. But if you think you activate your human brain and it pulls you out of that state. So it's a weird way of, of teaching your mind how to function. But I'm like, all right, what am I doing in their dreams? And they say, you'll feel what you're supposed to do. And I said, I, it makes sense to me. When you go into a dream, you don't know how you got there. You just know what's happening. So I'm also, I'm like, okay, I can accept that. It, it, Archangel Michael used to call it accepting information that comes from nowhere. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. I think I can do that. So they put me in dreams. I would do work for people in their dreams. But I was like, this isn't making sense. I thought it would be like modern. Sometimes I'm like in the 1600s. Sometimes I'm in the 1800s. Sometimes I'm in the future. And I'm like, wait a minute. I, I, I scared them because I'm wearing clothing. I'm all, I have to go ahead of time, look around and mimic what it is change the way I speak so I don't freak them out and then later uh I, I found out that I was going to other versions of myself to help my soul evolve in different planes at different times whoa interesting so, so you so you're actually going through the time stream you think you're just kind of like learning how to lucid dream and, and, and function in that way but you're actually healing and, and then they gave me a job yeah that's incredible. So I, I took one of my kids to France for a year and, uh -huh. you know, and he's 17 and I go there and I was working in other people's dreams. I didn't pick. I don't get a say I'm taken. You know, dream realms are, are super protected. You don't get to just go because you want to. It's, it's you know, something has to bring you. And so it would bring me into the other person's dream. But these were real people across the planet. And we go to France and a woman walks into the little cafe where I'm sitting with my kid, takes my hand, puts it up her shirt on her breast and says, it's you from my dreams. I'm here. I'm ready to steal my, my husband's money and run off with you in English. <laughs> so I'm like, how did she know I speak English? And she was one of the people that I did work with in dreams, <sighs> but it was crazy validating because I had never met anybody that recognized me from doing that. And then my, my kid is all like, uh, is this going to be a reoccurring thing as we move through France? And I said, I can't guarantee it's not, but I don't think so. Wow. So you were really doing this dream work. You're doing like shamanic dream yeah. work. It sounds like even because you did yeah. study. There's so much, I mean, my God, there's so much that your life has been involved in. I mean, not only did you have the 30 years as a behavioral therapist, which is kind of like after all of this. So you, you, you have these experiences and then you go into a professional field. Well, I, I was in that field. I, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to be at 15. Oh, I wow. knew I, I, I thought I wanted to do behavioral psychology. 
And then I was super, what's the opposite of enamored, disenchanted with the whole thing as I learned what it was. Uh, I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not checking boxes and fitting people into a diagnostic manual and then deciding how I'm going to get them to where they're supposed to be. I like quirky. I, I no, I'm, I'm pretty reserved to me, but I'm pretty eccentric. Sure. And uh, I like when people are different. I don't want to assess them and tell them what they should be or decide that because there's something they're not, this is how we're going to change them. I wanted them to decide what they want to be and come and tell me. So I switched tracks from behavioral, from behavioral psychology to behavior modification. Right. But you did do that on and off though for the 30 years, right? Oh, I did it consistently through it all. No matter what I was doing, I applied that same skill, no matter where I was and what I was doing, I just changed what its application was. Ah, okay. I see. But then where did the exorcist stuff come into play? 11 years as an exorcist. So you had to get training for that. I don't mean to jump around so much, but you have a really dense life. You had to have training for that somehow. And then you're traveling the world doing this. Tell us about your exorcist life, the exorcism story. Okay, so I came back. Uh, <laughs> I, I, had, I had gone, you know, to, to uh, Woodby Island, you know, military base in, in Washington State. I was coming back from that, back to California, and I saw a TV show on being a private investigator. And I went and opened the phone book, you know, back in the days when phone books were a thing. And I, I called a, a, a private investigator that seemed more, more legitimate and more successful than most of the ones I saw. And I called him and, and asked him, I want to know how you do what you do. How do you find people that are missing? And he said, I tell you what, you find me and I'll give you a job and teach you how to do it. Well, he didn't know who I was or what I could do. So I showed up at his house the next day and he was a smart guy. He had bought two plots, plots of property, one house, one house where their backyards met and built a little house in the middle where his business was between the two houses. So interesting. he figured there's no way I could find him. But I'm like, all right, most people own property. So what I did is if it's public record, people that own houses, I didn't look up his name owning property. I looked up whether he was married and found his wife's name and looked up the property she owned. And that's how I found the house. And then I went and knocked on the door and his wife said, you here for him? And I said, I am. And she didn't know what was going on. People came to see him. So she just walked me through the house, walked me through the yard and left me at the front door. And I knocked on his door and he opened the door and said, you know, I looked young for my age. I, I was, you know, super young. I was like, you know, 20. And he said, uh, who are you? Can I help you? I looked like I was 15. And uh, I, I really did. I got pulled over on my 21st birthday because the cops didn't think I was old enough to drive. So, you know, it's and he said, who are you? And I said, I'm the guy you just told if I could find you, you would give me a job. And he's all, how the heck did you find me? And I said, give me the job and I'll tell you. So that that is how I, I got into to that. So I worked for a private investigator, finding people and <sighs> process. Holy and God. I learned how people hide. I learned where where they do and what they do and, and how that whole kind of dark world works. 
And it was amazing. It was like a different part of that I'd never seen in application. I'm like, I can apply what I can do to this. It's amazing. Well, clearly you were so meant that, to do it. I mean, started. not many people pick up the phone and, and make something like this happen. Clearly you were meant to do it, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So <laughs> that is, is what started. I was on a job, strangely in Orange County, watching a guy that was a pretty bad guy in, in a biker gang that had you know done some really bad things. And uh, I was watching him. And then I realized, you know what, the people who are watching me watching him probably are lookouts for him. So I need to not uh, I need to not stand out. So there was a little strip mall and it had a metaphysical shop. So I walked into the metaphysical shop and the little girl behind the counter and she was a kid said, are you Gary? And I looked at her and I said, I am. And she said, I'm supposed to give you this. And she gave me a card that was an invitation to study with a man from Tibet who had got asylum in the U.S. when China started to attack, you know, the Dalai Lama in Tibet. And the Dalai Lama had ran to India. And this man got solace, you know, or got uh, uh, able to stay in America asylum. in Orange County. And he wrote a card saying this person who looks like this with this name will come in when he does give him this invitation. Whoa, man, you've got so a lot of cosmic stories. How, that is how I met the person who, uh, synchronicity like at its finest, right? Yes, so, exactly. And it's like, so I went, I drove three hours twice a week to study with this man. And there were like maybe 10 of us who all got similar experiences of evolution that he was saying that your soul has worked for a planet and I've been asked by higher things to teach you. And I said, okay, how much does it cost? And he said, no, 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 you, you don't pay. He's all, if you pay, then it takes away like maybe this was a business thing and, and I, I had some trick. And he goes, no, you will never pay anything. You don't donate, you don't pay. You just show up. I rent the space from this place and we meet and I teach. Wow. And that led you into exorcism because he was probably so, a person that removed spirits. Yeah, exactly. And he, he traveled all over the world doing it. And he was like, you, you have a hard road ahead of you. And he goes, and I'm not allowed to change it. I'm not allowed to take you out of any of the stupid, horrific things that are coming in the future for you and your experiences, but I can better prepare you for them. And so I'm like, that's amazing. Let's do it. Uh, that, that is where Tibetan Taoist is, uh, you know, what he was and what most of my background was that I really do base a lot of what I do on. Okay, so you're traveling the world removing these negative entities. Tell me some of the stories about that. What did you encounter? Oh, it's freaky. You, you sure I you want to go? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's pick a weird one then. Um, oh, great. <laughs> there, there was a girl that was uh, a, a stripper, a dancer in, in uh, a nudie bar. I don't okay. know what to call that. And it's like, and there was an older man that used to come in and he would frequent her and wait for her and knew her schedules. And he gave her a lot of money, bought her a truck. And one day he comes in and says, you know, tells her uh, it's time for us to get married. It's time for you to leave this industry and come live with me and get married. And she says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he says, but you accepted all my gifts. You accepted the vehicle. 
And he says, you know, and it's incredible that you were so generous and gave those things to me, but I have a boyfriend and there's no way I'm going to do this. So I, I used to, uh, I used to go to the different metaphysical shops that that would find connection to me. I, I never advertised. I, I so I, it was it was always word of mouth. So I never knew and I never questioned how did somebody know me. But there was a store in Denver, Colorado that was kind of a satanic shop. They really? sold things for that that kind of thing. I'm trying to remember the name of the shop and I can't remember. It was so many years ago. But they called me and said we have somebody that. Uh, this is not what we do. We sell little candles and things for energy clearing, but we've heard that you do this kind of thing. So I said, give me the backstory and let me contact them. So this is the story they gave me that I, I just gave to you. Yeah, yes, yes. And they said, beyond that, we don't know what's going on. So I called the girl and her mother answered and I said who I am. And she said, yes, I've been expecting your call. Uh, they told me that they were going to reach out to you and maybe you would call. And so she said, the girl is dying. And it's like, she is in bed. Doctors don't know what's going on with her. She's lost, you know, like 40, 50 pounds. And she's just barely holding on. We've tried everything. They sent her home on hospice. You are our last resort. So I said, all right, I'm coming to Denver. I go, it's like, I show up there and on my way, I get a jar of pickles and I dump out the pickles. They used to come in these big glass jars. I get a, a tin like that you would roast a turkey in. I get lighter fluid and matches. And I'm like, all right, I'm coming. Why am I getting these things? I have <laughs> no idea. Okay. I'm like, but I really was like, what am I doing? Having a barbecue? What? This is stupid. And I said, okay, I know why. That man... I don't know what he went through and what he sacrificed to do this to the girl because the cost is huge. He hired a Tahitian priest to do black magic against the girl. Oh my God. Just cause he was jilted. He was like a jilted lover. And so, so one of the things that, that that type of modality does within evil is it creates a living manifestation of evil in the body of the host that it is destroying. Holy cow. A physical manifestation, not like, you know, an energetic and I feel a dark thing around you. And I'm like, okay, one of my kids decided he wanted to come with me to do exorcism work. And I'm like, you're old enough to do it. If you want this to be your first exorcism, let's do it. So we're stopping at the stores and he's all, what are you doing? And I said, look, there's rules. And I follow predominantly catholic modality for my own structure okay. and it's like you know even though so it's take everything out of the room you know it's like we have soft ties ready take all the furniture out just leave them on the mattress in the the, the room and it's like i pad windows i, I take every precaution this is going to get crazy and i don't you know I, i'm not going to promise i can control anything i know what protects me i can't guarantee it's going to protect any of you so what keeps you safe is don't speak to it. Don't look at it. Don't communicate no matter what it does or what it says. Leave it alone. Let me deal with it. And I tell my kid, you absolutely do not communicate. It's like because it'll focus on whatever things. It'll try to pull things. It'll try to lie. It'll try to make you sound like this horrifically bad person. How dare you do it? But it's just trying to make everybody else shift their focus onto you instead of onto it. Right. So 
we go in and uh and you know the, the light bulb immediately blows <laughs> all right i plan for that we bring candles there's wind inside the room the candles are flickering and i i give the one you know mom i'm all your job is to keep candles lit i'm all there's nothing magical in the candle it's just a candle and i'm all it does play a role energetically but if it blows out oh no no you just relight it um, all things are going to go bad when we go in that room. You're going to get sick to your stomach. You might throw up. You might poop yourself. You might shake. You know, things are going to get wonky. You may see visions of crazy things. It's going to smell horrible. Those are all the tricks things can pull. This is a big, bad thing. If you need to, walk out. There's nothing wrong with you leaving. Go outside, get some air. We walk in the room. Everybody hits the floor, throwing up, and walks out, runs out of the room, and I'm sitting in there by myself. So I'm like, All right. I start, you know, I like uh, chanting. I like raising vibration through chanting. And so I do the Tibetan, you know, uh, kind of Tibetan Taoist chants to raise consciousness, to raise vibration. And I'm raising the vibration in the room, and everything is shaking. And it's, you know, the walls are shaking and you hear cracking. You're like, is the house going to fall on us? And the girl is doing this weird contortion type thing. And suddenly blood is coming out on the oh floor, you know, from her head. And a clump of hair goes and falls out on the floor, pops up like a spider and runs. So I, I slam the, the jar over it and put the lid on it and turn it over and seal the lid. So now it's going in the jar. Oh I go God. to their bathroom, put the little uh, the tin in there, squirt it with lighter fluid and throw the thing in it, light a match and burst it into flames. And it screams. Everybody is still sick, still shaking. And then whew, it's like somebody turned on the light. It had sucked all of the light out of the house. And I didn't even notice that. And then suddenly everything gets bright again. And the girl like settles down and relaxes and starts crying and calling for her mom. She was uh, from Ethiopia, I believe. And so she's speaking a dialect, you know, to the mom and the mom comes in and holds her and, and you know, grabs her. So I explain, you know, when you empty darkness, you 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 open a void and we need to fill that void with light. And it's been filled with darkness for a very long time. So we're not done. But, you know, she does get to take a break. Please bring her water in a plastic cup so she can't break the cup or something if we're not done. And usually demonic things that are true demonic, which is absolutely not so common, usually things are there are people's own negativity and darkness that's manifesting physically. It's very seldom what would be called full de uh, demonic possession. And it's like, so this was done by a very skilled person that was very dark into that kind of magic, because if you do a single thing wrong, the magic comes back and gets you. And it really had gotten her. So I told her, you know, normally I don't do follow-ups, but I want you to call me in a week. And I gave her my personal number. And I said, you know, the mom and I said, you know, we are going to spend several hours. I'm going to go get a hotel and I'm going to stay and I'm going to come back tomorrow. And it's like, don't give her anything today. And it's like and then tomorrow start her eating simple things like, you know, cream of wheat, you know, type of things. And she's like, OK, so we got to get her body used to it. And she needs to digest things and run her metabolism healthy, you know, as quickly as we can. 
So I ended up staying there like three days. My kid was like, I'm never doing this again. Never <laughs> going with you. <laughs> wow. So, you know, he was like 22, 23 then. And I'm like, you know, and, and he's like, never. I don't want to know about it. I, I believed it existed. I knew it existed. I wanted proof to exist. And you gave it to me. I'm done. Wow. So you think it like validated him, but also freaked him out at the same time. Yeah, I was like, I am not <laughs> walking into a room saying God will save me. I'm just not walking into the room. Wow. So that's one story, but you did this all over the world. And this is just one aspect of your life. But then do you feel like you had more strength in dealing with these entities because of your gifts, because of the program, yeah. because of what you went through as a kid? I, I really do. It's a, it's a weird way to say that. I, I feel like I was raised by angels. You know, uh -huh. it's like, I don't mean energetically raised up. I mean, technically raised as a child because every night I would check in with them. I would go to higher planes. I would talk to different teachers and then I would seek out teachers on earth to go talk to them. And I was always surprised that I got to talk to them because it's not done. <laughs> So, you know, this this shows you my my age, but Sai Baba in India, uh, Pema Siri, the, the abbot for Hindu religion in um, Sri Lanka, it, he just amazing. He was amazing. Uh, uh, but I just got to teach to Ananda in India. Because you got to learn while you were traveling and doing the exercises. You got to learn from the teachers that you were uh, around at the time. I met one, you know, that, you know, everything is synchronicity yes, you know, in, in my life. And it's <laughs> like, I met a boy that was a monk in Colorado walking on a road. I rolled down the window. I told him, don't walk on the road. I know it's hard to walk in the field, but there are no lights on this dirt road. And it's going to, uh, cars can't see you. And sometimes trucks taste this to go faster than the highway. So I'm like, it's why I take it. So I can go around all that to go home. And uh, he's like, uh, I know a solution. And I said, oh, you speak English. I'm all, what's your solution? He goes, you could give me a ride. <laughs> and I said, no, I can't. I cannot meet some monk kid on the road and say, get in my car, let's go. And I'm like, he goes, well, I'm not far from the monastery. And I'm like, there's a monastery. I didn't know that. And so he said, yeah, there is a monastery. You turn on the next road, come and go right and go all the way down to the end. I'll meet you there. He's I'll tell them I sent to. And I said, okay. So I did. I drove to the end of it. I just wanted to see the monastery. I thought that was amazing that there was a Hindu monastery in Colorado and I didn't know about it. So I go down the road, I go to the end. The people are super smiley and happy and a man comes out who speaks English, you know, fairly well and says, we're so happy that you're visiting. Please come in. And I, I'm like, you're so welcome. And he goes, we've been here for years and nobody ever visits. We thought that it would catch on. People would want to talk to us and would come and talk to us. And we were going to teach what we, we, we do and, you know, what we believe. And nobody comes. So you're the first person to come. We're so happy. So they invited me in for lunch. And I said, let's do it. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I got so excited. I forgot to tell you why I'm here. And I'm all, there's a boy walking on the road. And I suggested he doesn't walk on the road because it's hard to see him. And he says, I know uh, he speaks English. He's visiting uh, and from another country. And he's very good at English. And he loves to read. So we let him walk to the library in the town one day a week. And it's like, I'm like, oh, that's what he's doing on that road. It's like, it's the only way for him to go. We don't have a car. 
So the kid shows up, you know, super smiley. They talk and the, the adults come back to me and say, we're okay if you're willing to give him a road. It was Tuesdays, I think. If you're willing to give him a ride to the library. And I'm like, all right. I didn't realize what I was agreeing to, but I'm like, I'll do it. So I would come pick him up in the morning on my way, you know, to go work and drop him off at the library. And then no matter what the time was, I would come and grab him on my way back and drop him back off. Well, I came to him and, and told him, you know, I'm going to India, but I'm going to stop in uh, Sri Lanka. And he's before, and uh, he's all, well, that's where I'm from. You have to meet my dad. You have to stop at my dad. And I'm like, all right, I'll do it. That's amazing because I don't know anybody there. I don't even know why I'm going. I just feel like that's where God wants me. And I have to have the courage and the confidence and the strength to do what's asked of me. And this is what I'm doing. I was 22. And I'm like, here I go. I'm going to do a 2,000 mile backpacking trip across India, starting with three months in Sri Lanka. So I'm like, here I go. And so he says, you, you have to come back to the monastery before you go, because I need to give you a letter that we will print that gives you permission to, to go with my dad when you arrive. So I don't know how countries, you know, this is 30 something years ago. So uh, I didn't know how countries ran. I had never been out of America. And so I'm like, all right, this is my first trip. And I take the paper. He says, you can't open the envelope because it's got a seal and they need to open it when you arrive there to, sit, to ensure you didn't change anything in it. It turns out his dad is Pemasiri. He was the abbot for the Hindu religion in oh. Sri Lanka. He ran a private deep meditation center and I was the first foreigner to ever be allowed to stay there and study there. Whoa! The dad's it spoke no English, but there was a woman who would come there that spoke English fairly well. So she would come twice a week to, to translate for us. I didn't know that. And he translated when I first got there. No one has ever done this. I've never allowed it. I don't want tourism coming here. And it's like, but my son has never asked me for anything. So I wasn't going to say no for the one request he finally asked me. So... <laughs> And that again. man was amazing, and he set up the different spiritual teachers I would meet on my trek through India. Wow. And again, this is just like one of the many things that have happened to you. You seem like a very special soul that, again, you came here for a purpose, and you require to have a, a vehicle that was part of this program. However, that vehicle showed up. That's what was needed in order to allow your energy being to kind of interact with this dimension. If that makes sense. It does make sense. And it was my first experience within searching for spirituality. You have to put back in perspective, terminally ill. Yes. So my, my family was like, you're going to go to this country and die. I had to stop taking all the medications that I was taking that doctors had said, keep me alive. And I'm all, it's not quantity of life, it's quality of life. And it just isn't in me to hide in a house and wait to pass away. I've got to do something. So this was me doing something. I was going to run away and, and die in India somewhere, but I was going to search for spirituality. And the only place that, that made sense at that age, I'm going to find it in India. Right. <laughs> I got there. And the first thing they told me is all of the people where those things have left, they live in Australia and Canada. 
<laughs> Interesting. Wow. But and then, you, but but you haven't. Have you taken any of that that medication that was helping you in the past since? Like you got off the medication and then you oh, lived. Oh yeah, yeah. It's I I had a good run. I had a good 10, 12 years of not taking medications, and then suddenly I was super sick and I don't remember what happened. I was on the street. I woke up in a hospital. Oh wow! And the doctors were like, you know, you you ignored what we were treating and your body adapted the best it could until it couldn't. Wow. But at least you were able to have those experiences, those incredibly yeah. valuable experiences. It's not like you're debilitated or anything. You're just on medication. Well, I, I am on a truckload of medications today, presently, and it makes me super functional. And finally, I, I went back to India years later because American medicine had said, we, we, we know what your body's doing. We don't know how it's doing it, and we don't have a solution for you. They said it falls somewhere in genetics, in neuromuscular, uh, between your brain stem and your spine. Interesting. And they're like, that's as much as we can tell you. But genetically, it, it is a genetic thing, but our, our science isn't far enough. So check in every couple of years and run new genetics tests and see. I had Johns Hopkins call me, and I had been applying to go there. I've been to most of the major hospitals across the U.S. And they called me, and I was super excited. And I said, are you going to accept me to a research program? And they said, no, that's not my department. I said, well, what's your department? We would like you to sign over your body for research once you pass away. <laughs> They're like, no, nah, we'll I'm, like, I'm, I'm not signing that. <laughs> yeah, the next thing you know, you end up dead, actually, you know, from exactly. some strange no. accident. I'm not giving you any reason for me to be better <laughs> off for you that way. I'm like, no, no, no. So all of these experiences they kind of aggregated and accumulated to make you the person that you are today. Yeah. And you're teaching people. That's kind of where it, you're it, at. Now. It wasn't intention along the way. I was searching for, for depth of spirituality, which makes sense in context because I was told I was going to die from birth and I was waiting for it to happen. And then I, I exhausted what American medicine would do. And I had just been transferred from UCLA to Stanford and Stanford had told me, you know, we're going to discontinue with you because we're taking space with you and we don't believe we can help you. Oh my God. And I'm like, okay. So one of my kids got a job in, or he wasn't my kid, but you know, he was friends with one of them and he got a job in India and, uh, and said, you know, I just moved into an apartment that's very close to a huge municipal hospital and people fly from all over the world to come to this place. You should come. So I said, I'm going to do it. And I got on a plane. I went and stayed with him. I checked myself in with that hospital and amazingly different medicine than what I grew up with in America. Here, insurance won't cover you if, if more than I think it's three or five people, different fields of doctors collaborate. And it's like there, the man who was the head of the neuromuscular pro uh, department had retired from running a department in Chicago, Illinois at a major hospital there. And when he retired, he went back to India to bring his experience back there. So he was a guest you know, in the head of the, the department. And when he heard of me, he took me as a client personally. He spoke English beautifully, obviously. And he connected me to all the different departments where he thought, and they ran all of the tests over again. He said, and every doctor I've ever seen said, I don't believe your test results. Something is wrong. So we want to run them all over again. And they always came back exactly the same way. And it's like, so uh, in India, 
three months later, he finally gave me a diagnosis. He changed the medications that America was. He said, those medications will damage your liver and your kidneys. These medications won't harm you no matter how long you take them. And I take what? Gabapentin and um, Gabapentin's a big boy of, of a medication. And I take quite a bit of it. And it's like, which it's weird that the side effects are the things that you're preventing that you're preventing your body from having. So it, I'm like, all right. But he took me off of all medications, put me on ones, and it was hell. But they have a, a hospital there that's connected to their campus, and they monitor you. So they were like, let's take you to the least amount of medication you need to produce the best result possible. And he made me choose, do you want your mind to work or do you want your body to work? Because you can't have both. And I told him, make my mind work. And it's like, so he's all, you'll be in pain the rest of your life. And I'm like, I, I can do that. And it's like, I'm a hypnotist. So I use my own hypnosis to, to deal with that. And I'm like, but the medications, my muscles cramp, my body doesn't make energy well. So it converts mitochondrial, you know, energy is what your brain and your heart use. And adenosine triphosphate is what your you know, rest of your body, your muscles use. So if I overuse my mind, it's trying to convert the energy from my muscles. And then my muscles get stiff and tight and I can't move. I can't walk. Or my mind gives out and my body feels incredible, but I, it's hard for me to remember things and to think clearly. Interesting. So, so we did, it was hereditary metabolic myopathy, I believe is the final term they came up with. And they, they manage it well. It is, does not kill you. And if it starts when you're later, so they assumed it started around 13 years old for me. And, uh, and which means that at, uh, about 50 years old it tapers it off and whatever you got you got for the rest of your life but it doesn't lead you any further oh, wow. i'm 52 yes so you made I'm like, it. all right so it's manageable i'm absolutely <laughs> functional so wow amazing well, road well thank thank god for the medications that are out there this intuition and you're on that Indian regimen the what you learned from india and and you're you're here i mean thank god like Whatever yeah. that mystery illness is, like we talked about early on, they, they had no diagnosis and you're saying now they kind of came up with something, but still they don't know exactly what it is. And well, you're the still American here. doctors don't agree. They're like, we don't believe it's this, but we do believe that these medications are trading your symptoms and that's the best we can do. All so right. I'm like, fair enough. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But all, like I said, all of these situations kind of uh, coalesced into your curriculum, what you teach people, how you teach people. So tell me some things here, how, from your perspective, because I know this is important to your curriculum. This is an important part of your curriculum. How can we increase our awareness and have a direct experience with God? So we're both increasing our awareness as humans, which then connects us to those higher frequencies, that higher information, which people define as God, that mystery. How do we do that? Like what are the original steps and what are some of the steps we follow up with? So, you know, to, to say things can be specific to up to people's specific experiences. For a lot of people, they're, their little subconscious them is stuck playing over and over again, something that was misperceived or horrible to experience. And that dictates where their mind can go. And so that's for some people, they do have to overcome that. They do have to, to remove that desensitize, you know, and remove the energy connected and change the patterns. But assuming the person is all on board with, I'm ready. I just don't know how. One of the first things I suggest is it kind? 
ask that question. I know that seems overly simplified, but the reality is DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy, has an awesome piece that I really like, and I use it even outside of that context. Where was the point where my decision made my situation worse instead of better? And if I can identify the patterns that where I do that and the triggers that bring me out of that or cause it, I can own it. And if I can own that, I can change it. That is always my first suggestion for people is know where your patterns are triggered that make things worse for you instead of better for you and catch it and choose differently. Easy example. A woman cuts you off in a car. You know, uh, this is a true story is why. So an older woman cut across two lanes in front of me, swerved her car sideways and rolled down her window to scream at me how big of an idiot I am for for causing this potential accident. And so I, I roll down my window and I'm like, I'm sorry, you're right. You're right. She's all, of course, I'm right. You should feel very bad and very ashamed. I said, and I do. And it's making it worse because you're not letting me out of it. Please you know, have a good day. I am so sorry. And she said, well, you should be. And she drove away. So I assume that was a whole lot of projection. And she felt stupid for thinking I need to go right. And she cut across traffic. And now she's stuck in the middle of the lane in the middle of the intersection, holding (laughs) everybody up and people are honking. And she just felt like she could shift it to me. Well, I could have chose to make it worse, make it worse for her. Am I going to yell at her? That's not going to help. All I care about is let's get this lady out of the middle of the intersection before somebody isn't paying attention and hits her and makes this worse. And I'm all, that's okay. If she wants to vent on me, I I don't know who she is. I'll never talk to her again. And my 10 seconds of interaction with her are not going to make my day horrifically bad. And hopefully she's going to recover and not make her day worse than the day she's already having. The point where the decision could have made it worse or better. Right. And it's like, and I'm using an extreme decision, you know, no, situation. That's, that's it's a good example. See, but, but, it's, but it's the reality of we go through it every day. I tell people every day you wake up, you are going to have to choose the light over the darkness. Every single day, no matter what that is for the individual, no matter what that means. And some days we choose the light and some days the darkness wins. And some days we can say, oh, I'm sorry. And everything is fine. And sometimes no ability to say I'm sorry is going to be received, accepted or change anything. So what we're trying to do is take an intentionally positive role in responding, not reacting. Yes. Respond, not react. And that's that's something that we've talked about on the podcast in the past. But as you do that, as you take control of yourself and you own that and you change it, you raise your vibration. You you're becoming a right. better energetic in, in, human. You're 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 more than you were before, despite yeah. the mistakes that you've made, which we've all made as humans, despite right. those. No one's innocent. No one. Yeah. And despite those, you can still raise your vibration. And, and that the point of it is you can't change what you've done in the past, but you can change how you see your present and you can absolutely change what you'll do in the future. And if you can do those things and you're a conscious part of those things, you raise yourself and your vibration and it's contagious. And it's like others around you will see you do that behavior and go, that is what I should have done and should do. And it's like, and they'll ask you, why the heck are you happy? And it's like, look, 
when you're connected to God, and I truly believe this, when you're connected to a source of energy, everything makes sense no matter how chaotic it is in you, and you find kindness, compassion, and acceptance. But it starts with being able to do that for ourselves. Wow. And because that self-love, as actually we talked uh, with Evan Burton of Induvius, he was very much uh, about self-love and the importance of self-love and how much you can grow literally from zero by just owning your life and then loving yourself regardless of, of any situation, just being love. And then you get to have that direct experience. You get to truly have direct yeah. experience, which which you feel personally, you've stated this on your website, which you feel is so important. So how would you define a direct experience with like divine energy or just something other? Like how would you personally define Yeah, that, that is a, a good, good question. And not <laughs> an easy one to answer with depth and clarity because there is illusion and delusion. Wait, did you see that? Did you see yeah. that? Did you guys see that? <laughs> And everybody's all, no, it was a sign. I saw a sign. Like, okay, buddy. It was a reflection off the glass because the car turned the corner. <laughs> no, no, it was a sign. And it's like, so that the reason I, I'm making fun of that type of thing is because it is exclusive to the person and they have to interpret it, but you're looking for profound. You're not inside yourself. You're not looking for something on the outside of the world the truth is in you not outside of you but the outside of you is a reflection of the world inside of you so if you if you're affecting your internal world if you're affecting you in existence in internal planes or dimensions earth tr it trickles down into this and is expressed through your physical life outwardly and so we all have work. You said it beautifully. We all have work. We all have things we've done. And it's like the reality is when do we start taking ownership and when do we start learning to appreciate the good we're capable of and being able to enjoy that in, despite all that we've been through, everything we've experienced, there is still that light in us. There is still that quest for more. There is still that intention to want to be more than we are and have ever been. And that is, is what it is, is hope. And if the person can hold hope, whatever that means to them, that gives them clarity of their connection happens. Interesting. Wow. And really it feels like direct experience is probably one of the most necessary components to kind of cross over that threshold into truly right. knowing, into truly knowing just that something a, else exists. Obviously, it's a complete... And, and that's a big question that a lot of people have. Please, God, prove to me you exist because I don't <laughs> want to be the fool who kept trying to believe in something that's laughing at me or doesn't exist anyway. Right, right, right. And it's like, you know, it's one of my favorite things that's funny is if, if, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> that's a good it's one. Like, because it's true. No matter how well we plan, what happens, happens. My thing with it is that I had it a second ago and I'm, oh, that was okay. So it's, it's the ability to, I forgot your question. I was thinking. No, we were talking about quickly. direct experience and how important it is and how it crosses you over into that threshold of knowing. Yeah. So it, it, it is the ability to accept it more than the ability to cause it. What we call synchronicity 
or deja vu or any of those kinds of words of things aligned in a way that there's no way that could have happened in that way if something larger than myself didn't do it. So that's why we're talking today about I went to India and this happened. I went to L.A. and this happened. That isn't what I was looking for. But it led to the next thing that led to the next thing. And that is how life is meant to happen. If you get the thought of what you want, it finds a way to manifest for you. But the harder part is the acceptance of it. Yes. And it's like for a lot of us, we don't feel worthy. We don't feel like it's ever going to happen. And we burn the energy that would have created the reality. That's where the love, compassion and acceptance come in because you don't burn the energy. It allows it to play out and you get to experience it. If we tend to find what we search for and it's kind of a, a point of human experience and nature of physical reality. If you decide you want to find God, you want to find experience, you will find it if you search for it. Not yes. if you wait and say, OK, God, if you do it, I guess I'll accept it. <laughs> Well, you can't pray a boulder up the mountain. You have to push the damn thing. And, yeah. you know, the thing is, is yeah. that when you have those clues, there's also another aspect is that when you open up and you start to have those things happen to your life, you have to follow it. You have to pursue it because yeah. all of those things are like clues for you to yeah. advance your own personal spiritual growth. So you're saying when those things happen, it's it's there, you acknowledge it, but there's also an action that needs to be taken in order to further the development. I, I agree, absolutely. And it's I, I know a lot of people that that believe good things are going to happen and they're waiting. And I'm like, but they might, but you might miss it because you didn't get things in a line. You know, one of my kids used to call it get all your ducks in a row. And it's like, so, and it, that's what he meant. And that's what I still use because it's, it's lining up the possibility by having the courage to act. That's yes. scary when I, you know, the reason I wanted to backpack across a third world country, you know, at a time where it wasn't, you know, roads weren't so put in, you couldn't just take a bus. It was because you find where I can find clean water. You find where you can find food and then you leave it. You have no idea what's coming in front of you. You have no idea where you're going and you do it again. And it's like, and if you get too comfortable, <laughs> monsoon weather happens and everything is gone. And what you try to create stability, you can't. You should have been preparing by using logic, looking at weather and saying, I need to get to higher ground. Why am I still here eating chicken and sleeping on a cot? <laughs> Well, here's the thing, though, that all of this information, everything that you've learned in your life, all of your gifts led you to become kind of like a, a conduit for other people. And they they hired you in a professional context. Now, this was all private. This was all word of right. mouth. But you started working with people directly. Uh, it, it's true. I, I was young when I, I met my first. How do I say that? affluent person that that had i call them manifestors I think, I, I think they were making like 22 million dollars you know a year in uh, in 1980 you know which was insane and in distributing across the planet and uh it was the woman and she was amazing and it back then it was hard and she was tough but 
she uh, she was just a huge inspiration to me that I could fit in their world, that I wasn't intimidated, and that the, the fact that I was so much younger than them didn't make them not listen to me. And it's like, so that was my first thing is, what do I have to say that these people are going to want to listen? But when I spoke, they listened. And then I became a fad, which is weird. They, they passed me to a friend. Oh, yeah, my spiritual advisor. And so and I'm like, OK, so I'd meet the next person who would pass me off to the next person would say, you have to go to this country and meet this person. <laughs> and they would pay for everything because it became the fad of knowing, you know, me and having me in their life personally. And it just snowballed into what became my career. So you essentially were a spiritual advisor then to these wealthy, affluent people all over the world. Uh, word spread. People found out uh, via recommendations. And then you became, like you said, a fad. People were like, oh, like they wanted it in their lives. They wanted that thing. And if they had it, it maybe it was a status symbol somehow. I mean, and, and exactly right. And now it would be called a life coach before that kind of thing existed. But yes. my goal was to give myself as much experience eclectically as I could so I could draw off of it and have something in common with whoever was speaking to me and be able to relate to them. I wanted the spectrum. I wanted to be able to fit in the dirt and I wanted to be able to dress up and be, you know, look nice and actually fit with the whole spectrum of human condition and human experience. Wow. So what did you learn, I think, from those situations, dealing with those people from around the world and teaching them? What are some of the biggest things you've learned from that experience? So I don't mean to make a joke of it, but the, the number one thing I learned early, super wealthy people don't spend money. <laughs> they, they were really like debating something, you know, for weeks to spend what I would consider not a large amount of money, especially within there, but everything is weighed, everything was calculated. It taught me differently than how I was raised about how money works and what you have to do to make the money work for you. And it is an energy in itself. And I always knew that. But how do you get in the flow where that can come to you and work through you and move with you? And, and not have the limits that a lot of people experience. Wow. How to be able to connect energetically and then follow it up with action that leads to that. Wow, so you really tapped into the abundance consciousness via being around these incredibly wealthy manifestors. I like to call them manifestors because that's exactly right. These yeah. people, whether they're consciously aware of it or not, that you know, there's a term conscious competent and unconscious competent. You know, if you're aware of your abilities to manifest and you have the resources, you're a conscious competent. If you you're not aware of your abilities, but you're still doing it, you're an unconscious competent. But all of those people are tapped into the abundance consciousness. And that's what right. that helps you understand that and grasp that. Not a lot of spiritual people are really harmonizing with the abundance consciousness yet. There's definitely huge pockets, but I feel like right. when I first uh, came into contact with it, that it should have been incorporated into the spiritual thinking, into the spiritual community far earlier, far earlier, because everything's infinite. Yeah. So there shouldn't be a fear of money. My My thing now is that you no longer, and this is amazing that the world has finally moved to this, you no longer have to give up all of your possessions, you know, and live in a cave or live in a, a monastery 
to be able to develop spirituality. Yes. You no longer have to separate from the responsibilities of having a job, having a family, paying bills, working, making money, and searching for spirituality and developing that ability and those skills. It's Tibetan Taoism has has side effects, right? So the, the meditations and the way that you do things, metaphysical abilities are are genuine side effects. It brings out whatever the person is naturally at the vibration for. You don't know what it's going to bring out. You don't know what you're going to get. And that's why I'm like, okay, whatever happens, I will teach you to use it. I'll teach you to control it. That was a big thing for me is growing up trying to teach myself how to control things. And it's like, so that was really my search is I can't control what's happening to me. What do I do? So now I've become pretty good at figuring out how to connect to the right things to figure out for the individual. This is what's happening. This is what you're experiencing. And this is how I'm going to teach you to, to develop it, control it and and uh, keep moving forward. My, my real belief still holds true. And people are upset with me for this. They're side effects, not the goal. The metaphysical ability is not a measure of spirituality. No. It's not a measure of, of I'm higher, look what I can do. No, it's like it's you have the ability to connect to that vibration and it's coming through you. And those vibrations are being made easier to connect to as the world evolves and as the planet, you know, as the vibration of the plane shrinks. It's making people more connected than they once were and easier to connect to different vibrations of energy. And as they come through us, we manifest things differently in the world based on our experiences and our perceptions and our ability to accept it and to move forward with it. So that that is a big message that I'm like, you don't have to hide from the world and hide from the responsibility to gain spirituality and metaphysical ability, although it may be a side effect, it's only useful to me if it's helping you to overcome your past, to overcome what's bothering you or, or you don't like of your present and helping you to create or manifest a happier, more compassionate, more accepting future. And continue to grow. I would add to that and continue to grow because if you get yeah. those abilities and you're like, oh, you hit the stop button. No, that, that wasn't the purpose. Yeah. If anything, if you do notice those things and you're able to notice them without attaching your ego to it, then you should just Perfect. use that. If you, you should just use that as motivation to keep growing. Just notice it, notice it, potentially use it. But then kind of just keep going, just keep going because it's not, yeah. it's not an end post. And here's the thing I want to tell people. Okay. Gary has taught privately his whole life, word of mouth, things like that in this realm of teaching. But for the first time, for the first time ever in his entire life, he's opening for public clients. So people can actually get in contact with Gary and, and become a client and get this training. Gary, tell me about this. So uh, it's it's individual basis. And the reason I did that is because I, I want to understand what their goals are, what their motivations are, what they're experiencing and where they want to go so we can see if I'm a fit and so that we can see how I believe that I can help and what we can do and we can create a floor plan of this is what we're going to do. And it's like, and then this is how we're going to go about it. My, my thing is each person's experience is, is different. And if somebody is, I don't know why I do this. This is a true story. So I won't name names, but <laughs> I had a woman, she could not break 
$32 million a year. She could not do it. And she's like, no matter what I do, I start making the most ill-thought-out, illogical, and self-destructive choices without consciously being aware of it. And then when it comes back to come crashing into my head, I look at the numbers at the end of the year, and it never beats $32 million a year. So for some people, they'd go like, oh, well, that's enough for you. You don't need more than that. Sure. But for her, I'm looking at, okay, what's happening in you? So behaviorally, I, I never know when you open the door what's going to come up. If it's past life, we go with it. If it's present life, we go with it. Whatever comes, that's what we work with. And she had experiences when she was a little girl with her dad and things went you know, wrong and the dad was disappointed. And she heard the disappointment in what was happening. And that is what that pattern was, that when she almost succeeds, she will fail. And to her, beating 32 million was succeeding. So she just couldn't allow herself to overcome it. So if you look at that from a, a different person, a different client, you know, completely different related thing, she, her situation was that she just couldn't communicate with her son clearly. She just shut down and she's like, I communicate with everybody. But the second it starts to get serious and real with my kid, I act like an idiot and a fool. And I'm like, and I just can't take it seriously. And I see the disappointment where he's like, I thought this was going to be real and it's still not. Her kid was a teenager. So when we explored that for her, it was a, a problem with, with her wanting to be his friend and wanting him to think of her as a friend. And she really could not allow herself to shift into being a parent, which is what he really needed. And it's like, until she made that realization, and then she developed a very clear, deeper relationship where she could play both roles. When it was time to be serious, she took responsibility. And when they could have fun, they had fun. My point is, I don't know what the people's search is. I don't know if their search is, I want to develop spirituality. Let's take a look at what your process entails and what we need to do to, to accomplish that. But it's not only specific to that. So behavior modification is behavior modification. I've done it, you know, 30 years and I absolutely love it. Spiritual development is amazing. And I love to have the spiritual tinge to the behavioral, you know, work that I'm doing. But I'm open for whoever comes through the door. Let's see what I can do and, you know, and go from there. Yeah. I think it's more than that though, because you're incorporating your gifts. Like it's not like yeah. the average person was a part of that program. That's not like the average person that's out there as a life coach or a spiritual advisor right. has the abilities that you have. So if you take on a client, you're going to be approaching it from such a multidimensional yeah. perspective. And like you're saying, you're not really sure what's going to come out or what the road is to healing or figuring out even what to, uh, the healing is for a person. But what you do know is that all of your learnings, everything that you've developed over your life and your gifts are what will coalesce and kind of yeah. be used as your toolkit when dealing with clients. Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly right. You bring the whole toolkit to the table <sighs> and you unpack what you need as it, it presents itself. And I love metrics. I love measurable ways to show progress, right? So I want, okay, low hanging fruit. We can do this. And I, I think this is pretty straightforward. Let's give you relief. Let's work on this now. 
as we create our plan of what we're going to do for our program continuing forward. And it's, uh, I'm a lifer. And what I mean by that is when I know somebody, I know them forever. And it's like, and uh, the work is the work. And there's a difference between strictly behavioral therapy. I'm not their buddy. I don't see them outside of, 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 doing spirituality but spirituality i believe everybody brings everything they're capable of to the table and i believe that's the way we're supposed to do it and sometimes one person is at the front and they say you know this is kind of in my wheelhouse let me help and sometimes you're the one who needs the help and others are coming you know to you and it's like so that that is what i like is cre- creating the community of people I, back in the day i started a school mst metaphysical services and training And I dared people to come and prove they have psychic or metaphysical ability, believing I was going to be one of those people that prove they're charlatans and that they're they're fake and they're deluding themselves. And it was absolutely the opposite experience. I just met truly gifted, amazing people that that were developing their abilities and didn't know what it was and didn't know how to control it. And that's when I learned I, I could connect universally to other people's guides they call it a universal medium instead of i i couldn't just connect to archangel michael i connect to individual people so their guide would come and say okay this is how, what the person has experienced this is what they need and this is how to help them gain control and develop it and so that became my my goal and i was young you know doing that i don't know how people came to me so young but they did and it was, you know, internet didn't exist yet. There was no such thing as this. So there was only flyers and we would make flyers and cards and put them out in, in different spots and people would call. I didn't think they would call. Cell phones didn't exist yet. And it's, well, they did, but there were the giant military ones. They didn't <laughs> like what we carry now. And so it was not so easy. You know, you had landlines. And so I had to have a separate landline, you know, so that, uh, that people could, you know, call and reach and the old school answering machine, which, you know, in time became an answering service, which was amazing. And it's like, you know, which became a secretary, a sit in the office secretary and a traveling secretary. And it's uh, technology has saved me so much because it could do so much more than than what I could manage as it grew. Right. So even connecting with people's spirit guides is something that you incorporate into your holistic approach. I mean, it's more than a life coach. It's more than a spiritual advisor. It's, it's more than a channel. It's more than a medium. It's all of those things combined. It's hoping, it's hoping that I I will connect to whatever is needed in that individual situation. And that's what we'll use from the toolbox. Wow. So if people want to find you, look, if you're hearing this, if you listen to this amazing conversation, which was so dense and and went in so many different directions, but kind of all was themed. If you're feeling this and you want to work with Gary directly, go to this website. It is the evolution of soul. S O U L the evolution of soul.com. And then you go there, you can read up a little bit about it, and then you can email Gary directly. And there's a contact form to fill out as well. You can fill that out and Gary will get back to you. And and you can start this process with this incredible person. So my my only 
you know, caveat to that is on there, it says, please put in the time zone. Please do put in the time zone <laughs> because I travel a lot and, you know, I'll schedule things, but I need to know what time I'm meeting compared to what time you're meeting. So we're on the same time. Right. Yes, exactly. We all want to be on the same time. zones. I deal with that with guests. Uh, recently, I just made my very first mistake with dealing with someone in Belgium. I messed up by an hour. It's the time zones can get confusing, but uh, I really appreciate you being here, Gary. It's been a fantastic episode. I do. Before we go, I do have one more question. And then I'll let you close it. Your kid, you mentioned that you had a child. Does your child exhibit some of the same gifts that you have? I have no biological child. Oh, okay. Okay. This was no. a stepchild. Yeah. Okay. No, no biological. Okay. I was and confused. And, and, and that is confusing. So it's good to clarify <laughs> that. It's like that is a whole talk in itself. I had government intervention where they had sent me a psychic woman that was used up by the government and crazy. And she said, I'm to have kids with you. Oh, <laughs> well, you know and what? And I was like, whoa, no, we're not going down that road. But you know what? Well, that's a catalyst because we'll have you back. I'd love to have you back for another episode in the future. We can talk about this more and see how you're developing as this first time uh, acceptance of public clients is happening. So, Gary, again, thank you for being here. I deeply appreciate it. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Incredible. Please hold through the outro music. And everyone, check out Gary's website. Check it out. It's amazing. And we'll see you next week, Midnight on Earth.